0: If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 will be our text this afternoon. I encourage you to have a Bible open. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, just open right in the middle of your Bible. You'll find the book of Psalms and then head to the right and you'll see the large book of Isaiah, Isaiah 34. I want to begin by reading... Chapter 34 of Isaiah. And so I'd invite you to hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 17. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day, it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its forests, in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things, not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his Spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them, his hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever, from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. Isaiah 34, verse 1. Says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Here in chapters 34 and 35 of Isaiah, we have reached the culmination of the six woes that we began back in chapter 28. And this, the, the climax of the section, begins with a plea in verse 1 to listen to the word of the Lord. It's a summons that goes out to every person. You see that in the verse. It's, it's to the nations, to the peoples, to the earth, to the entire world. Everyone, everyone must hear this word because it is a word that will affect the eternal soul of every person in the world. And it's a word that we must hear because it sets before us everlasting life or everlasting death. There are two paths set out, a path that leads to destruction and a highway that leads to life. And so these chapters present us with a choice that will affect each of us, every single one of us, because in these chapters, the Lord is making clear that a day is coming, a a final day, a day of judgment and sorrow, as well as a day of salvation and joy. In these two chapters, Isaiah spells out both how devastating the day of the Lord will be and also how blessed it will be, how devastating it will be for God's enemies, and how much blessing will come to those he has redeemed. And he makes it clear in this passage, only God's highway will lead to everlasting joy. Let's hold that in our minds as our big idea this afternoon. Only God's highway will lead to everlasting joy. If we're picturing two paths, there's a path in chapter 34, and there's a path that we'll see in chapter 35, and the path in chapter 35 is God's highway and it's only God's highway that will lead to everlasting joy I don't know about you but there's there's some places that come to mind where there's only run one road where you can get to us to the place uh, there's some barrier islands if you've ever been out to the east Coast and they have some some big bridges that head over some sort of marshlands and that's kind of the only way that you can get to the paradise that's found over there or you can maybe think about other places where there are no roads, where you can only get to a spot by boat or, or by plane. And as we think about the day of the Lord or the end of the world or the return of Jesus or whatever you would like to call it, we find here that there are only two options. That day will either be a day of judgment and sorrow or a day of salvation and joy. And Isaiah says that only God's highway will lead to everlasting joy. The only path to eternal joy is on God's highway. And so, of course... My great hope today is that we would all walk out of this building knowing that we are also walking on God's highway, that, that our feet are on the clear and level path that leads to the everlasting joy of the new Jerusalem. And so I want to make it clear today that to walk on that highway is to walk by faith, to walk by faith in Jesus. But this is not, this is, uh, not simply, these chapters are not simply a call for initial saving faith, but also this culmination that Isaiah has been pushing for us to live a life of faith, to walk by faith always, to, to be firm in faith. These chapters come between continual calls for God's people to be firm in faith and trust the Lord alone. And what we'll see in chapters 36 through 39 is a description of the salvation that God brings to those who trust in him alone. And so faced with the choice of of trusting Christ or trusting ourselves or some other refuge, my hope is that we would all be firm in faith, that we would know that only God's highway, only this this highway that we walk through faith will lead us to everlasting joy. But I also hope that this text will cause us to, to reckon with the reality of the wrath of God that is being seen here and that's so clearly revealed, that we would see the judgment that is most certainly coming, on all God's enemies and that we would, we would be moved with compassion, moved with zeal towards those who are outside of God's grace, who are not on this highway. And then having seen the judgment that is coming, I pray that we would also be able to rest, rest in the strength that comes through faith and the joy of the hope that we have. I don't know about you, you read that chapter, chapter 34, and hearing about this day of judgment, it, it can be a little bit difficult. It's not easy to read these graphic descriptions of the wrath of God like we find in chapter 34. And into that tension, I found Barry Webb's words helpful in his commentary on Isaiah. He says this, We, of course, would like to have only one of these realities, blessing without curse, salvation without judgment, heaven without hell. And we are always in danger of rewriting the rules, so to speak, to suit our own inclinations. But the biblical revelation has a stubborn shape to it, that resists all manipulation of this kind. It forces us to decision. We must have it as it is, or not at all. Accept it, or make up our own religion. No quarter is given, either by the biblical writers or by Jesus himself. On the last day, some will go away to eternal punishment, and some to eternal life. And so we're back at verse 1 we're back at this call to listen to this word, knowing that it speaks of the final reality that we all have to face. And in seeing that, we see that this is a call of grace. It's a call of patience. It's a call of warning. And it's a call that we all have to come face to face with. So as we look at chapter 34, we see first this truth. We see the, the truth of chapter 34 is that the wrath of God will be revealed. Very simply stated, you could have written that main point, the wrath of God will be revealed. That's what chapters, chapter 34, verses 2 through 17 tells us. It graphically describes for us the coming wrath of God on the last day that will be leveled against all of God's enemies. Now, of course, God's wrath is not only revealed on the last day. Within Israel's own history, we could look at, to the Exodus and we could see the wrath of God on the Egyptians. We could turn forward a few chapters and, we, and we'll see God's wrath on the Assyrians. And while sometimes it's hard to discern in our day and age what the natural consequences of sin are and what the d- direct expressions of God's wrath are, we know that, that God is indeed fighting for his people, that he punishes the enemies of, his enemies in this world. But what is described here in chapter 34 is primarily the wrath of God fully revealed and unreservedly poured out on the day of the Lord. And with regard to his judgment on that day that is coming, we find three things we can say about God's wrath. First, God's wrath is universal and cosmic, verses 2 through 4. God's wrath is universal and cosmic. These verses, they, they speak of slaughter, of rising piles of corpses, and of mountains flowing with blood. And they tell us that our God is a divine, the divine ruler of this world, and we know that he would be no ruler, ruler at all if he did not bring justice into this world. And so we see him acting in judgment on all who have rejected and rebelled against him. And it's, only on, it's not only on the earth that his judgment comes, but even on, in the heavens. It's as if the, the cosmic unseen battle against spiritual forces in the hidden world have broken into time and space such that the, the sky itself is falling like autumn leaves. we often imagine that the world that we live in is eternal, that the universe can, can never cease. But a day is coming, as the hymn says, when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And that rolling up is not simply to reveal the coming King, who will justly judge, but also to signify the end of the world as we know it. As we consider this universal and cosmic wrath, let's say, second, that God's wrath is against his consistent enemies. God's wrath is against his consistent enemies. We could see that in verses 5 through 8. In verses 5 through 8, this sword swings down from heaven and it judges. Edom, you see that in verse 5, it descends for judgment upon Edom. Edom represents the the constant hostility towards the people of God and against God himself. Edom was was made up of the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. And throughout the scriptures, we see over and over again that Edom is working against God's people and against God's purposes. There are many examples. If If you read through the Old Testament, whenever you see Edom, you'll note that they are the consistent and constant enemy of God's people. We could even remember our most recent study in the book of Esther. You remember that uh, the main enemy in the book of Esther was Haman. Haman, the sworn enemy of the Jewish people, was a descendant of Esau. Haman was an Edomite. And so Edom stands for all who consistently work against God's people in this world. It's not just Edom. We see in verse 2 that the Lord is enraged against all the nations, but Edom stands for those that are opposed to God. And what these verses reveal is that there is a day coming when when, God's, when the Abrahamic covenant, his faithfulness to that covenant will be fulfilled in that cursing will come on everyone who curses God's children. Now reading these graphic verses, we may be tempted to disconnect God from his judgment on his enemies. Because if we can disconnect his hand, maybe in some way, it makes it a little bit easier to accept. But we're not allowed to do that. Mottier says of this sword imagery that that carries out God's wrath, that it is is an instrument of person-to-person destruction. You think about a sword, it's person-to-person. There is no, this is not a drone. This is not even a gun. This is person-to-person destruction, figuring the Lord's direct action in judgment and the exaction of the individual penalty. This image of a a sword is then mixed with, with words that remind us of the sacrifices that God required of his people. And so God's wrath, we see, is not poured out without a purpose. It is a vindication of his glory and his holiness that's meted out on all those who have rejected him. It is recompense, the word is used. It's restitution. It's compensation for rebellion against the creator. In the last day, God's wrath will be universal and cosmic. It will be against his consistent enemies. And in verses nine through 17, we see thirdly that God's wrath will leave the earth desolate. He will leave the earth desolate. There are hints of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah here, um, as well as notes of finality throughout these verses. There's no hope of restoration given here. There's a constant burning. There's a smoke that rises forever like that found in Revelation 14, 11. The entire land is filled with emptiness and meaninglessness. In verse 12, there's, there's no people. There's no, there's no princes. There's no rulers. There's no promise of their return. People are painfully absent in these abandoned cities. Rather, the, the ruins of past kingdoms are are filled with wild animals. I was thinking about how Uh, in this time of pandemic, as people have not been out as much, that we've seen different instances where wild animals are coming into more urban areas. But in this day, there will be no people. You think about the most beautiful cities or the largest cities of this world. they They will be filled with wild animals. And these animals are not there temporarily. They've settled in is what it shows here. They have their home there. They're having their babies there. And they're there for a long time. And all of this, we're told in verses 16 and 17, comes... At the command of the Lord. It is written in his book, we see. It's spoken by his mouth. It's enacted by his spirit. There's a a note of divine purpose and certainty in this judgment that reminds us and takes us back to that call of verse 1 to pay attention. Listen, because we ignore this reality to our own peril, because this day is most certainly coming. The Lord has said it will come, and it will come. And in this call to listen again we see God's patience. In the midst of all of this anger and wrath we see the grace of God in the fact that he is even offering a warning. His wrath and his anger are so unlike ours which may be why we un- misunderstand it so much. In our anger so often we just lash out in a moment or we rashly hand out punishments without thinking about them. But the Lord is patient, and he is long-suffering. He says to Edom and all of his enemies, this is what will most certainly happen because of your consistent rebellion, unless, unless you repent, unless you turn. I, I don't fully know what to do with the deep wrath of God that's displayed here in this chapter, if I'm totally honest. It's shocking, and it's unsettling when you really start to think about what's being shown here. But when I see the warning of verse one, I see this call for people to turn. In that call, I can take the wrath of God and I go where we find we can make sense of everything. I go to the cross because we can bring God's judgment that's displayed here. We can take it to Calvary and we can see That God not only offers us a warning, God not not only is offering patience, but God is offering his son. In the first advent, Jesus comes, but he doesn't come to wield a sword of judgment against all his enemies. What does he do? He comes to lay down his life for his enemies. He comes to fall under the sword of judgment and to become the sacrifice that satisfies the vengeance of God against us. The message of the gospel is that God has taken this wrath, the the very wrath that we're reading about here, in all of its graphic nature, that the gospel says that God has taken this wrath and he has taken it on himself. That Jesus, as the God-man, came to bear in his body the universal and cosmic wrath of God in a way that only he could. That Jesus, who had never rebelled against his Father, willingly obeyed his Father and allowed the, the sharp sword of judgment to come upon him rather than on those who hate him and hate his children. Jesus, who was defined, his whole nature was defined by nearness to the Father, He became forsaken like a wasteland, like an abandoned city. And he died so that we could be given new life. How do you make sense of the wrath of God here? Not by denying it and not by dumbing it down, but by declaring that God's wrath is just and that he has taken it upon himself so that we who are his enemies might become his children through faith. God's grace has come to us in Jesus, and Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins who saves us from the wrath to come. And the work of Jesus makes the truth of chapter 34 not the only option for the last day. Jesus makes the beauty of chapter 35 possible. In in these 10 verses of chapter 35, we're assured in, in contrast, or I guess... In partnership with the fact that the wrath of God is coming, we're also assured that the grace of God is coming. That the grace of God is coming. That the day of the Lord is a day of great wrath, but also even greater grace and mercy and forgiveness. The grace of God is coming, chapter 35. Isaiah doesn't so much tell us about the grace of God that will come on the last day as he shows us what the grace of God will look like towards his people on the last day. And it looks like flourishing. It looks like healing. It looks like rest. It looks like security. And it looks like joy. Look with me at Isaiah 35. And as we read these, just think about the stark contrast between this chapter and the one that precedes it. And realize they're talking about the exact same day. This is a description of the day of the Lord. It will be a day of great wrath, but even greater grace. Isaiah 35 You can read along. I don't know if it'd be helpful to you even to just close your eyes and try to picture what Isaiah is describing here. Here's what he writes. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. "'Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. "'Say to those who have an anxious heart, "'Be strong, fear not. "'Behold, your God will come with vengeance, "'with the recompense of God. "'He will come and save you. "'Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, "'and the ears of the deaf unstopped. "'Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, "'and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. "'For waters break forth in the wilderness "'and streams in the desert. "'The burning sand shall become a pool.' and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway will be there it shall be called the way of holiness the unclean shall not pass over it it shall belong to those who walk on the way even if they are fools they shall not go astray no lion shall be there nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it they shall not be found there but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Can you imagine a more stark contrast between two chapters of the Bible than 34 and 35? It's the same day. It's a day of wrath, but we also know that the grace of God is coming. Now, of course, just like the wrath of God, we see the grace of God in the present, and the past, even. God's grace was seen in the Exodus as he delivered and redeemed his people from slavery. For Isaiah's generation, it would be seen in the return of the exiles one day. And as we just said, it's seen in Jesus' first coming to save us and to fill us with his spirit. As we're marching to the heavenly city, the The hymn says the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. But just as there is a day coming when God's wrath will be poured out unreservedly, there's a day coming when God's grace and mercy and love will be poured out unreservedly. We know in part what that feels like, but we will know in fullness in that day And what does God's grace look like now? And what will it look like then? I'll be honest, I hesitate to put words to these pictures because I think you take away a little bit of what Isaiah wants us to do. He wants us to see these and think about these and and feel the images here. So I'm gonna give you a few words to hang your thoughts on, but don't let them detract from the beauty of what Isaiah has written here. What does God's grace look like then and now? It looks like flourishing. It looks like flourishing. Verses 1 and 2, the, the wilderness and the desert are said to blossom and rejoice. If you look back in Isaiah 33, 9, these, these three areas, Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon, they were said to, to wither away, but in that day, we're told, they're going to bloom and reveal the glory and the majesty of God. It's hard not to think about the Garden of Eden where not only the, the beauty of creation is seen completely, but also the majesty of God is near to us as, as never before. And God's grace looks like flourishing in the presence of the glory of God. His grace looks like flourishing. It looks like healing in verses 5 and 6. As you read verse 5 about the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute, you can't help but see the ministry of Jesus as the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame leap and the mute sing. The healing of Jesus is, is clearly a fulfillment of this. And yet, it also foreshadows an even greater healing that's going to come with the return of Jesus. These verses look forward not simply to to healing in this day, but they look forward to resurrection bodies that are coming that will never suffer decay ever again. That there will never be any more uh, any blind or deaf or lame or mute or sickness or death ever again. And not only our physical bodies, but All other brokenness and lameness and blindness that you could ever think of, all of that that we know in our lives now will be fully healed, never to come back again. God's grace in the cross and in Christ's return, it looks like healing for every part of us, body and soul. And third, it it looks like rest and restoration. It looks like rest and restoration. I see that in the second part of verse 6, first part of verse 7, but again, I think those words are inadequate for the picture. The, the second part of, of the, it talks about water flowing into the desert because not only will, will we be redeemed, will we as people be redeemed and renewed, but creation itself is going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored. It's going to be made into this place of rest that we taste now when we look at a sunset or when we sit on the sandy beaches or when we walk through a mountain stream. It's going to be restored, and it's going to be a place of rest, full restoration for us. God's grace looks like flourishing, like healing, like rest and restoration. And in verses 8 through 10, we see that God's grace looks like security. Security. A causeway of sorts, we're told, is going to rise up this this highway is going to come up above the desert and above the wilderness. This raised highway where, where none of the beasts or the other dangers that we might meet on the way to Zion can get to us. It reminds me of um, the Psalms of Ascent in, in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 as we think about the pilgrimages to Jerusalem and how difficult they often were. Psalm 121 comes to mind. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It's, it's dangerous out here. But this journey, this this pilgrimage to the new Jerusalem is along a secure and a safe path. It's on this highway that's raised up where nothing can get to you. There's there's no wandering. There's no getting lost like they did in the Exodus. This path is called the way of holiness. God alone is holy. So we find that this is the way to God. Who's on the road? Well, verse 8 says that it's not the unclean but it can actually include fools. <laughs> In other words, even fools who find themselves on this road can't be so foolish that they find their way off of it. It's so safe that even a fool can wander down and he's going to make it to Zion. So how do you get on this road? Verse 9, I think, finally reveals it. It says there, the redeemed shall walk there. Who's going to walk there? The redeemed. I was reminded at the end of chapter 33 where we saw who's in, the, who's in the New Jerusalem? Those that are forgiven. And who's on the way of holiness? Those that are redeemed. This, this word redeemed, we're going to think about it more, I'm sure, because this is the first of 24 times that Isaiah is going to mention it here in his book. This is the first time he mentions redemption. Redemption has its roots in the Exodus where God redeems his people at the price of the Passover lamb and buys them out of slavery. And redemption is fulfilled in Christ who redeems us from slavery to sin and death at the price of his own life. And so it's those who trust in God through Jesus who are on this path. This is not a path that we climb onto on our own. It's not a path that we stumble upon by accident, but God in his grace redeems us and puts us on this path. I don't know the image of, if you've ever been on Google Maps and you grab that little yellow guy and you drop him on a street. That's what redemption looks like in here. God takes us from nothingness and he drops us on the highway that leads to Zion and there's no way we can get off of it if he's put us on there. And what happens when you get on this road? Where does it lead? It leads to everlasting joy. And so let's say that the grace of God, fifthly, it looks like joy. The grace of God looks like joy for his people. As opposed to the dread of chapter 34, the final day is a day of joy for all who find themselves in Christ through faith. A joy that we taste now and a joy that we will have forever in the new Jerusalem. This vision of the final day leads us to faith. Leads us to trust in him. If, if we look at the contrast between these two chapters, we say, oh, I want to stay on the way of holiness. I want to be one who is walking in that way. I want to be one who knows this this flourishing and this rest and restoration, who knows the security of this way, who knows the the joy of this way, who knows the healing that's found through God's grace. And how do we experience that grace? It's through faith. Again, this vision of the future calls us to continue to trust the Lord. Look at verses. We skipped verses 3 and 4 of chapter 35. Look at those verses again. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Do you have an anxious heart? I, I don't know. I get anxious sometimes about what's going on in this world and uncertain. And I don't know what's happening. Reminds me of our liturgy that we read at Christmas time. My favorite part is when we ask the question, Are you tired? And everyone says, We are. <laughs> Are you anxious? Of course we are. Are you fearful at times? Are you weak at times? Are you feeble at times? Of course. And this then says, say to those people, say to one another. It's the image of the community coming around and saying, be strong, fear not. Why? Because your God is coming. He's coming with vengeance and he's coming with recompense, which could be scary except for the fact that he is going to come And he will save you by faith. The vision of the wrath and the grace of God in the final chapter is to strengthen God's children for the present. It's to remind us that God will make all things right one day. But it's an encouragement that he is patiently waiting for even his enemies to turn and to trust him. It's a a reminder to trust the Lord alone. This is what's coming, so trust him. Don't trust the nations Don't don't trust these things that can offer you no security, especially in the last day. Nobody can save you in the last day except for God. And this vision calls us to strong faith, knowing that that if the Lord is our God, then he comes on the last day not to judge us. He comes to save us. And so we, we hold out this vision to one another. We remind ourselves that we're on this way and stay on this way. Don't stray from this path. So we hold out the vision and we say to one another, be strong. Fear not. God is coming. He will make all things right and he's coming to save you. We say that to one another as an encouragement. We say it to the nations so that they might find their way onto this path of holiness, this path that leads to joy and not despair. We say, you have reason to be anxious. You have reason to fear, but trust. Just believe in what God has done for you in Christ, and he will come, and he will save you, and he'll put you on this path, and you'll know everlasting joy. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I will pray for us, and we'll sing a song. But let's take a moment to reflect on God's Word. Father, as we look at these words, we, we confess that your wrath is hard to understand. And yet, Lord, if we, if we understood our sin, then we would look at chapter 35 and probably say, your grace is even harder to fathom. Lord, why would you be so gracious to us? Why are you so patient? Why do you not just consume us in your wrath, but you are so merciful. You call out, you warn us, you call us to to come to you and you have sent Jesus to take that wrath on himself so that we can be redeemed and walk on the way of holiness. God, your grace is coming and it is beyond our imagination. It will lead us to such deep flourishing, to full healing, to rest and restoration, Lord, to security and to eternal joy. In light of that, Lord, fill us with strength Drive fear from our hearts because we know that you are coming to save us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to encourage one another on this road with this vision of the future that you have laid out for us. Help us to remain faithful, Father. ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.